How many of you guys in here believe that God has laid down rules for this life? Yeah, and, and he did it in the form of a, a story, right? Sometimes we may take that for granted because if you're like me, I've got 15 versions and probably 20 copies of this on my bookshelves at home. But it wasn't always that way with the deities that people worship. What, what's made Israel different from the nations around them is the nations around them spent much of their time guessing what their, their false gods wanted from them. Some of them worshipped a god named Baal, who is a god of fertility. And if they looked at their crops and they weren't coming in good that year, they had to guess, did, did we somehow offend Baal? Did we do something wrong? And so they'd, they'd try sacrifices and try all sorts of stuff to make them happy again. Or maybe a couple would look and say, we didn't get pregnant again. Maybe, maybe Baal's upset. We don't know. So we've got to take some money down to the temple We've got to do this and that. How do we make them happy? They didn't really know. But then God, through Moses, began to write this story that's now been completed for you and I. He's a God who, who doesn't require us to guess. He told us. And, and I think God knows that, that we are a people, all people in general. Just about every culture in some way, shape, or form love a good story. Some of you love a good story in a book. Some of you love a good story in a movie. Last week was the Oscars. I don't know how many of you guys tuned in, but why are movies such a big deal? Because we love stories. Whether it's sitting in front of a fireplace with your family or friends, just sharing how life's been this year, reading a book, watching a movie. We love story. And God has given us his rules in the form of a story, a true story. He's given us a framework. For life, and we know the heart of that story, right? God is a holy God. He is completely set apart from sin, cannot be in the presence of sin. He created the world, He created man in His image, but then man fell into sin and could no longer be in the presence of this holy God. But God is also a loving God who made one way to restore that relationship through his son, Jesus Christ, who gave his life in our place and rose again to conquer death and sin. And the story goes on that those who believe that, those who have rested in that, we should no longer live life for ourselves. Life should now be a response of gratitude that says, thank you, Lord, Look what you did for me. You made me right with you through Jesus. Now I'm going to give my life for you. What do you want, Lord? I'm going to be completely and totally surrendered to you. I'm going to be all about spreading your good news and your fame around this world. That's God's story in a nutshell. And as I thought about God's story, I think there are three possible responses to it. One response is to reframe that story. And what I mean by that is to change it so that we like it a little better. To hear God's story and say, I don't like that part, so I'm going to alter it. Or to, to change it altogether and go to a completely different story. That's, that's reframing. That's one option. Another option is to obey his story. 
to believe it with all of our hearts and let it set the course of our lives. The third option is to ignore it, to drown it out and silence it in our lives because it makes us uncomfortable. And as we look at our passage this morning, I want to ask you, wherever you're at, maybe you've believed in Jesus in the past. Maybe you haven't. But I want to ask you where you sit this morning. Which of those most characterizes your life? Are you in the process of reframing God's story to your liking or choosing an altogether different story that you like better? Are you obeying it or are you ignoring it? We know that Paul obeyed it, right? He obeyed God's rules, his framework. 2 Timothy 2.5 says that, and this is Paul writing, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except he competes according to the rules. Paul not only wrote that at the end of his life, that's how he lived his life. He competed according to the rules, according to God's story. But what about you? We finish strong by competing according to the rules. Now let's look at these three possible responses in our passage. Acts chapter 24. You remember Paul's been arrested in Jerusalem by the Jews. The Roman authorities took him away from Jerusalem to Caesarea for safety's sake. And he now stands before a Roman governor named Felix. He, he holds the same position that Pilate held when Jesus was around. This is a big, important man in the empire. And I want to show you first how it was the Jews who reframed the story of God. They reframed the story of God. They changed it to their liking. When Jesus came, you remember how it started? It started when Jesus resurrected. And, and how did they reframe the story the moment that happened? The disciples stole his body. He didn't really resurrect. Of course, they never produced a body to prove that, but that's when they began to reframe the story. And I want you to hear how, how that reframing actually rippled out into the future. And because they wouldn't believe that Jesus resurrected, that he was their Messiah, it affected how they viewed all of his followers, including Paul. Because if Jesus didn't raise from the dead... And of course, Paul was just causing trouble and telling lies and he needs to be dealt with, right? And many of them actually believe this. Now let's look, they, they got a lawyer to bring their case against Paul and listen to how he reframes Paul's life. You know, you and I would look at Paul's life and say, he's just being faithful to God. He's just doing what God told him. He's just fulfilling what the hope of Judaism was, that this Messiah came he did die and rise again, and I'm going to obey him. But listen to how they saw it. Five days later, the high priest Ananias, remember that's the guy that, that told the man next to Paul to strike him in the mouth before he was even charged, went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. What's going on here? Yeah, 
Yeah, and, and that's part of what happens when you're always looking elsewhere for what is the true story. They're looking for this governor to validate their position. So they care a whole lot about what he thinks. And most of this wasn't true. This governor was known for some bloody revolts against the Jews. Most Jews didn't even like this guy. But hey, we got to butter him up. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. Now, if you guys have been in enough church services, maybe even here, you know when a lawyer or a pastor says, we're just going to be a few minutes, (laughs) it usually goes beyond that. But a lot of people think what we have here is just a summary of what Tertullus said. We have found this man, Paul, to be a troublemaker. And you see, right in those first five words, this is all about how they view what's going on. This is how they've reframed it. We have found this man to be a troublemaker. Stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Now, you could look back at Paul's history, and there were at least six riots in cities where he went. One one man said everywhere Paul went, there was either a riot or a revival. And sometimes there were both at the same time. But you and I know, looking at that, that Paul just was speaking to people. It was the response of those that listened that created the riots, right? But the the Jews have reframed this. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. These aren't the the Nazarenes of today. Okay, Nazarenes is a denomination. I I had a friend, Andy, that worked at the Heights with me who came from a Nazarene background. And uh, we'd sing a couple songs to Andy. Andy walks with me, Andy talks with me. And, and when Andy did a really good day of work, we'd say, I stand amazed in the presence of Andy the Nazarene. You know, that, that's not the, that, that Nazarene is actually close to what we're talking about. Jesus grew up in Nazareth. And so those, those people who began to believe in Jesus sometimes were known as Nazarenes. Paul's leading this Nazarene sect. It's, it's not part of who we are. It's, it's this, they're almost like a cult of what we believe. That's what Tertullus is saying. Paul even tried to desecrate the temple. You remember they falsely accused him of taking a Gentile in the temple where he shouldn't go. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Now we're going to stop there. They had completely reframed the story of God and Jesus, right? Because they were holding so tightly to their view of things that they couldn't see the truth when it was in front of them. And I want to ask you guys on a practical level, how is it that we in this room or people in this world today reframe God's story? One of the ways we do that, people in this world do that, is to turn to any other religion other than faith in Jesus Christ. If you look at almost any other religion besides faith in Jesus Christ, most of them tell you what? That if I do this and this and this, I can somehow climb my way to God. Some of the New Age religions teach us that, hey, I am God. And all I've got to do is find that in me and be enlightened. And then I'm there. That's one way that the story gets reframed. Gets reframed when we try to mix any of that in with true faith in Jesus. Jesus doesn't say believe in me as one of many other things in your life. Did you know that? He says, I am the Lord and Savior. There is no other way. Do not create a blend 
with false teaching in myself. I don't blend. (laughs) I am the way, the truth, and the life. But maybe it's not a different religion. Chances are for most of you in this room, it's not. But maybe it's what drives me in this world, what's really important to me in this world. Maybe it's materialism, where I am defined by how much I have and what I have. And that's what makes me happy when I get down to it. Maybe it's humanism, where I really believe that we can, we can do this on our own. We don't need God. Maybe it's relativism, which says, hey, there is no absolute truth, so whatever I believe is okay, and whatever you believe is okay. My guess is, though, in this room, where most, most of you, as far as I know, believe in Jesus, one of the ways we reframe it is when we get a lopsided view of God. We get a view of God that we create actually in our own minds more than what comes from the Bible. And and sometimes we overemphasize one aspect of who he is to the detriment of the rest of his his aspects. One One of the ways I think we do this sometimes is with God's holiness. The Bible teaches that God is the holy king of the universe. Cannot be in the presence of any sin. He is completely separate from sin. He is holy. He must judge sin. Thus the existence of hell. He cannot and will not be in the presence of sin. He is holy. We water that down when we get this idea in our minds that, hey, I can pretty much live however I I want because God's kind of like my mom or my dad. You know, they... They love me and they don't want me to do those things. But as long as I come to God when I get there someday and I die and say, hey, God, I'm sorry. He's going to say, hey, it's okay. Come on in. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God is holy. And if you have not come to a personal relationship with his son who died and paid the price for your sins, if you get there without having done that and say, God, I'm sorry, At that moment, Jesus is going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And you'll spend eternity apart from him in eternal conscious torment. When we emphasize God's love to the subtraction of his holiness, we we reframe the truth of God. We can do it the other way. When we have this view of God that is almost entirely comprised of his holiness and his hatred for sin and and we minimize his love and and this shows up in churches where we start adding to how we're saved the bible says we are saved by grace through faith when we receive god's gift period not by works some churches look at god's holiness and say it can't be that simple we've got to believe in jesus yes but then we've got to do this and this and this And if we don't, you cannot be made right with God. That's another way we reframe the truth about God. We reframe God's truth when we wrongly interpret events in our life according to our liking. Have you ever been in a situation like this? This is just a for example. This is not actual, but I've been in similar situations. You have a marriage where a husband ignores his wife for 15 years. Everything is all about his hobbies, his work, etc. So he gets to the end of the, he, he gets to that 15 year anniversary 
And he looks at the distance in his relationship. And a lot of times that husband won't say, wow, look, look at what I've done to create this distance. What will he say? He'll look at God and say, how could you give me a woman like this? We're so distant. Why'd you do that, God? And I can hear God saying, you're totally reframing what's happened here. You have ignored that woman and your family for 15 years, and now you want to reframe it as something I did to you? Ever done that yourself in a situation, in a bed that you've made? Look at God and say, how could you do this? (laughs) Another, for example, you fudge a few numbers on your taxes, and you get a call from the IRS to set up an audit. They want to come to your house and look at things. And you come to church that Sunday and say, oh, the enemy's attacking me. (laughs) The enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I know where this is coming from. Would you pray against the enemy with me? I'm under attack. And I can hear God listening to that conversation saying, you're not under attack. (laughs) You sinned and you're reaping the consequences. We, We refrain things. Sometimes it goes the other way. I've heard of situations like my friend in Ohio who's a youth pastor. He's no longer at this church. To this day, for the past five and a half years, he's been fighting a disease that's very cancer-like to where he, he is ill every day, headaches, throwing up the, the works, and they can't figure out what it is. And my friend loves Jesus, loves God, loves his wife. But the pastor at the church that he worked at at the time had the nerve to tell him, This is due to a lack of faith in your life. God is bringing this upon you because you don't believe him enough. That man had reframed events in my friend's life a totally different way, right? Paul himself said, hey, sometimes God allows a thorn in my flesh so that I might rely on him. Paul himself prayed for that to be removed three times. And God said, no, my grace is sufficient in your weakness. We can reframe what's going on in our lives. The trouble with all this reframing, is, especially when we overemphasize certain parts of God, is summed up in this great story. It was told to be profound, and on the surface it may even sound profound to some of you guys. It's this Eastern story about an elephant. Maybe you've heard it. Three blind men walk up to an elephant. And one of them finds the tail. And, and he feels the tail and he says, this is a snake. And another one finds the side of the elephant, the large, wide, broad side. It says, this is a wall. This is a wall. Another one finds one of the legs and says, this is a tree. And the supposed moral of the story is this is how it is with God. We all come to him with our own perceptions. And whatever that perception may be, so be it. Christian thinker Ravi Zacharias says there's, there's one big glaring problem with that story. It's an elephant. It's not a tree. It's not a wall. It's not a snake. It's an elephant. And and that's what happens when we choose to reframe God's story. We may like our perception, but at the end of the day, 
God is God is God. We don't have permission to reframe that. God is God is God. What, what happens when we do this, when we live life this way, constantly reframing the story to our liking, it leads to a frantic search that never ends in our lives. It leads to, man, I need another book. What's the next best book coming out there that can give me another story to just meet my needs, to what I like? It's a constant search that never ends because we always need another story to justify and explain what's going on. And I just want to ask us today in this room, is there any way you have reframed or changed God's story? Are you doing that right now? Let God speak to you. Second response is Paul. And obviously, Paul is our example of obeying God's story. And that means to believe it and follow it as the the course of your life. Here's Paul's response to all these accusations. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. Notice the difference between his response and and the other lawyer. He's polite, right? But he's not buttering him up because he's not putting his hope in this lawyer. His hope is in God and God's story. So I gladly make my defense. Here's the response to the first accusation. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. This is the response to the, hey, he's a a ringleader of all these riots. Paul's like, hey, 12 days? How much can one guy cause in 12, trouble can one guy cause in 12 days? It was only 12 days. What, What could I have possibly done in that little bit of time? Not only was it 12 days ago, I went up there to worship. Remember, he was actually worshiping in the temple. As a believer in Jesus, he was, he was going through some of the things in Judaism that did not contradict his new faith. He was there to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges they're now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. Right here, he's responding to that thing. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. He's like, this is not a sect. This is the fulfillment of everything they believe. I'm not the one that's in the wrong here. They they should be with me because those early believers who were Jews did not see themselves as former Jews. You know what they saw themselves as? fulfilled or completed Jews. They realized that all that stuff in the Old Testament pointed to the Savior they believed in. He's like, I'm just living out what they should be coming along with me. The way. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. Only difference is he looked at the law not as something to rigidly follow every detail of today. He looked at it as something that pointed to Jesus which is the real and true way to look at the law and the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Now here you get the heart of Paul's obedience, right? These men believe in a resurrection. So does Paul. What's Paul's response to the fact that there will be a resurrection where we all stand before God? His response is, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. So 
It's a heart of obedience. I know God's story. I know there's going to be a resurrection. And I'm going to shape the course of my life in line with that. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially, yeah, that's a big word, ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me. I didn't bring a Gentile in, that's what he's saying here, nor was I involved in any disturbance, at least he didn't start it. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before he can bring charges if they have anything against me. Check this out. It was Jews from Asia that brought the accusation against them in Jerusalem. They didn't even come to this trial. <laughs> they knew they had nothing to stand on. They're, they're not even there. He's like, they should be here if they got a problem. Or these men here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Paul just knew God's story and was living his life in light of it, right? And I thought of uh, an example just this week that, that sums this up better than anything else I could share with you. You may have heard that on Thursday, March 6th, just this week, these are just representative photos. There were 33 Christian missionaries in North Korea that the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-un, set aside for execution. These 33 believers had partnered with a South Korean missionary who had been going into North Korea, and it's believed that they've been a part of planting over 500 churches in North Korea. He slated them for execution in the cell of the state security department. This was a couple days ago. It may have, have already happened. This guy doesn't just blow smoke. You remember a couple months ago, his uncle was number two in the land and he felt like his uncle was making a move on him. He had him executed. And since then, the guy that took his uncle's place is missing too. This is a guy that doesn't just blow smoke. And maybe you read this. Uh, a woman named Lori Stanley Roloveld this week wrote a, a wonderful blog about these 33 Christians. I want you to tune into this and think about living a life of obedience to God's story. She said, I imagine 33 of my Christian friends executed for leading people to Christ. Just imagine that. Facilitating worship, praying or offering praise to God. I would be devastated, she said. But I would also know that God has the last word on their lives. Not Kim Jong-un or the evil power behind him. She goes on, while we in the West argue over worship styles, sleep in when there's a visiting preacher, bemoan having to endure a boring prayer request or off-key soloist, serve up the pastor's sermon over lunch. You guys have never done that, have you? <laughs> or sit home and judge the church unworthy of our attendance altogether. There are other brothers and sisters gasping their way to every precious moment when they can gather in hiding with other precious believers and hear a whispered message from God. Bathe in the reading of his word and pray with passion and tears for strength to endure and the courage to continue speaking the truth under threat of death. 
God placed us all where we are. He assigned us to our stations. There's no guilt in being born in the land of the free as opposed to a country under harsh rule. But there is guilt if we use our freedom to indulge our petty preferences, to pad our comfort, to drift through this dark world basking in our own light rather than using it to serve those who waste away in prison cells, wondering if they've been forgotten or their families left to struggle alone with hunger, fear, and loneliness, or those serving the Lord in dark, dark places who need our prayers for their protection, deliverance, courage, and strength. She said, worship will be different for me this week with the report of 33 gunshots bouncing around the inner chamber of my soul, reminding me that we aren't home yet. She closes, I would want their deaths to motivate the church of Christ. I would want their deaths to galvanize other believers, to put feet to their own faith, to fuel their passion for Christ, to remember to pray for those who suffer, to spread God's word with more zeal, persistence, and creativity than ever before. Obedience. I look at that example and I ask us, are we passionately accepting and following God's story in our own lives? Third and final response is Felix. To ignore God's story. Felix and his wife Drusilla are an interesting couple. He attained his spot in the empire through a lot of treachery, a lot of deceit. His wife actually used to be a wife of someone in the Herod family. You know the Herods that killed John the Baptist and so on. The, the Herod family that tried to kill Jesus when he was a baby. That was her upbringing. She was married to one of them and Felix thought she was hot. So he actually hired a magician with great speaking skills to talk to her and persuade her to leave her marriage and come be his wife. Okay, so that nice, nice little couple here, Felix and Drusilla. Now I want you to look at what happens when Paul comes before him again. After Paul's initial response in that first meeting, Felix adjourned, the, adjourned those proceedings. He says, when Lysias, the commander, comes, I'll decide your case. So we're not going to decide it right now. I need that commander that sent you here to come. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. This was probably not an official meeting of the court. You got Felix and Drusilla. We don't know why they called this. Maybe they're bored. Maybe they're looking for, what's, what's this stuff going on? Just some excitement. Who knows? But listen to what Paul talks about. Remember their lives. <laughs> you think the Holy Spirit led this message? It says, as Paul talked about righteousness, <laughs> self-control, <laughs> and the judgment to come. <laughs> think about this couple, everything I told you about them, and there's more if you read up on them. You see them starting to get antsy, right? Felix was afraid and said, that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. So what's going on? They, they want to hear 
but they don't want to hear because the Holy Spirit is getting in there and he's making them uncomfortable because they know what Paul is saying is true. They know there is a judgment to come and they have not been walking in righteousness or self-control and it made them afraid. So what's the response? Let's just ignore this. Paul, go away. Go away, Paul. You're making me uncomfortable. There's a story about this that ought to hit home in our hearts. It ought to hit home in your heart if you're here and you haven't believed in Jesus and you're waiting for some elusive day in the future. It ought to hit home in your heart if you have believed in Jesus and you got people around you that have not. There's a, a story that Clarence McCartney told of a meeting in hell. Okay, and I think to make it more biblical, he told it that way. Satan's not in hell right now. He's roaming the earth. So let's make it a little more biblical and say they had the meeting somewhere on earth, okay? Satan meets with his four head guys. And they're coming up with a plan to deceive the world. And, and one of his generals, head demon, says, hey, let's, uh, let's get the world to believe there's no God. And Satan says, no, they can just look around at creation and know there's a God. That's not going to work. Another demon says, hey, let's, let's get them to believe there's no heaven. And Satan's like, no, too many of them believe that there's an afterlife where they, they, they want to enjoy an ongoing sense of bliss and happiness. That, that won't work either. Well, third one says, what, what if we get them to believe that there's no hell, no, no punishment for sin? And Satan's like, no, no. They, some of them try to cover it up, but deep down in their hearts, they know this, the scales will be reckoned someday. That you, you can't fool them with that. And the final demon says, I've got an idea. Let's convince them that there is no hurry. There is no hurry. And Satan said, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. That, that's Felix here. This is making me uncomfortable. There's no hurry. Let's just ignore this. And how, how do we do this in our lives today? We do it by busyness. Some of us are intentionally busy, I believe, because we do not want to slow down and hear what God is saying to us. If you're here and you haven't believed in Jesus, that looks like, hey, when you feel convicted of sin and he starts to work on you, rather than acknowledge that, you want to bury it. What God's trying to do is to say, hey, you need a savior. Jesus is that savior. Believe in him. But you feel the discomfort and say, I'm just going to ignore this. I'm going to work more. I'm going to get, throw myself into my hobbies, my family, whatever it is, so that I don't have to hear you talk to me, God. I'm not getting alone. So I'm going to be busy. We, we do this even as believers through deflection in our lives. I hope you got loving brothers and sisters in your life that are close enough to you to say, hey, I, I sense in your life that you're, you're walking down a path that's harmful to you, that's sinful, and I'm concerned about you. I pray that we're humble enough to receive that. But what do we do a lot of times? We want to deflect that off and say, well, this is why and this is why. And we justify it. That's another way we, we ignore what God wants to say in our lives. The trouble with this, that, that first way of life, we're always looking for another story. That makes us frantic because we never find the one that we're settled on. Paul's way of life makes us faithful when we obey. This way of life makes us fearful. It leaves us fearful because we know something's wrong, but we're not willing to stick around to find out what the answer is in Jesus or what change we need to make in our lives. We're just going to ignore it. And so I want to ask you on this one, is there any way you are working to ignore 
what God is saying to you, what God's story is saying in your life. If so, slow down, stop deflecting, and listen. He loves you. He'll speak truth to you. He'll speak what you need to find his son or obey him again. So as we look at those three responses as we wrap up, which of those most accurately characterizes where you sit today? You reframing? You obeying? Are you ignoring? I heard somebody in the front row say, oh, and that's probably some truth in that, you know, for some of us. You know, it's possible that in some parts of our lives we're reframing. Other parts we're obeying. Other parts we're ignoring. The trouble with that is you're not fully obeying if you've got any of the other two going at the same time. And we're all guilty of this at times. But here's the real trouble. Two of these lead to disqualification in the race of life. Not many people start a race saying, I want to be disqualified. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, I make my body my slave so that after I preach to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. That means as believers even, God's not going to take away our salvation, but there's a judgment coming. And if we have not been faithful with the opportunities that Christ has given us, we're going to lose reward. 1 Corinthians 3 says it this way about the foundation of the gospel. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, those are all things that survive fire, right? These are the things we do for God and for his kingdom. In his power. Or wood, hay, or straw. What are those? Those are the sins, the, the things we do for us with leaving God out of the picture, the times we ignore him. On that day, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, that which is done for God and his kingdom, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, all that other stuff, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. But here's a haunting line. Yes, he'll be saved, but it will be as one escaping through the flames. It's like you get in, but just, just barely. It, you're saved by God's grace completely, but... Little reward for it because you live, live your life for yourself. Paul said, I don't, I don't want to be there. I don't want to spend my life, in my words today, reframing God's story or ignoring it. I want to obey it so that that day there will be great reward. Even more humbling is what this means for those who don't believe. If you've never believed in Jesus, if you are in the process right now of reframing his story or ignoring it, that disqualification looks a whole lot worse. Revelation 20:15 says, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. I don't say that up here proudly or happily. I say that humbly and with a broken heart. That's what God's word says. And, and the encouragement would be, hey, don't reframe this morning. Don't ignore. Listen to God's voice if you haven't yet believed and realized that Jesus paid the price for your sin. He died and rose again so that you can 
be made right with that holy God. That's the only way. And if you're a believer here, it's not too late to turn around if you say, wow, yeah, I have been building with a lot of wood, hay, and straw. I want to start building with that gold and those costly stones and the power of the Spirit for God and His kingdom. We want to be able to say with Paul what he said in Philippians 3, and I'll close with this. That path of obedience leads to the prize. Philippians 3, Paul described his life as this, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. May that be what characterizes our lives. Father, challenging message is we look at three real life examples and we look at our own hearts. Challenging is we look at believers in North Korea who gave it all because they believe in a kingdom that lasts forever. Father, we lift up their families and friends and, and those who will carry on in their place that, that you continue to give them boldness. 500 churches. That blows my mind. As was written in that wonderful blog, Lord, may that challenge us to say, wow, wow what would they have us do? What would Christ have us do? What would Paul have us do? He'd have us to run this race faithfully according to your story, to tell others. Bring them along with us, Lord. Help us. If there's any reframing or ignoring going on, break through that, Holy Spirit. Help us to listen and obey to your voice in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.